Exodus 21. And no, this isn't going to be the greatest sermon I ever preach. Matter of fact, it might be horrible. Yeah, it's because the subject is hard. Uh, even last week, Michael's like, I don't know how you're going you're gonna to have to preach on slavery next week. Like, I looked. It's horrible. It's like, I know. I know. I, I was so glad that Michael preached last week so I wouldn't have to. I didn't have to preach on this subject last week. Uh, but I'm faced with it today. Uh, this is where we're going to be in Exodus 21. Uh, I, I think I say this quite a bit, probably all the time, but I'm going to say it again. I like preaching through books of the Bible. I do. I prefer it. I prefer preaching books more than I prefer preaching topical because it forces me and forces us really uh, into the topics of conversations that aren't comfortable. That's the thing about topical preaching. I can preach about whatever I want to talk about, right? And I can deal with things that it's easy for me to approach, things that the church says all the time. We talk about love all the time. We talk about grace all the time. We talk about stuff. There are some things that just become easy to preach as a preacher because you talk about it all the time. And, and, and so when we preach books, though, we come across things that are not comfortable. They're not easy to talk about, right? Uh, uh, and I don't want to preach on them. I don't like talking about them because there's no easy answer for it. And some people, when they come to the Bible, that's what they want. They want this easy answer, but it's not always easy. There are a lot of things in the Bible that are difficult to talk about. You know, we were talking about uh, the other day, I was talking about, when I was talking about this same subject with my wife, I was like, you know, I don't like talking about prostitution because there are some countries, can you imagine how hard it is to talk about prostitution where it's legal? I mean, it's a viable thing in Europe. I mean, it's pretty viable in Vegas. Pretty, I mean, it, it exists still today, right? Right? It's, it's hard to talk about genocide. It exists in the Bible. It's hard to talk about how come God allowed this or how come God allowed those are hard things to talk about and confront man it's even hard to talk about slavery and that's our topic today and, and there, there there isn't like a, a like there's no matter what I do there isn't an easy way to talk about this subject to really cover it well would take more than a single sermon but I don't want to talk about it a whole bunch so I'm going to condense it all right I'm going to present it the best I can in the light of the scriptures for good or bad. My hope is that we walk away and see both the depravity of man as well as the sovereignty of God taking place within the Bible. Okay? As what, I also want us to see that there is a pattern. There is a pattern here, right, uh, for which Jesus would later establish a pattern of Redemption and reconciliation that's starting to begin, that, that, that creates this uh, uh, modus operandi for Jesus, right? Where he gets to establish his church, the ecclesia, the, 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 the thing he builds, which is the kingdom of God. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm gonna, it's my hope to try to just present it the best I can. So we're going to jump right in. We're going to read the scriptures here in Exodus 21, and then we're going to confront this topic head on. Exodus 21, I'll cover the first 11. These are the regulations you must present to Israel. This is right after he gave the Ten Commandments, okay? If you buy a Hebrew slave, he may serve no more than six years. Set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. We know about this. It's called the year of Jubilee, right? If he was single when he became your slave, he shall leave single. But if he was married before he became a slave, then his wife must be freed 
with him. If his master gave him a wife while he was a slave and they had sons or daughters, then only the man will be free in the seventh year, but his wife and children will still belong to his master. But the slave may declare, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I don't want to go free. If he does this, the master must present him before God. Then his master must take him to the door or doorpost and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. After that, the slave will serve his master for life. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she will not be freed at the end of six years as the men are. If she does not satisfy her owner, he must allow her to be bought back again. But he is not allowed to sell her to foreigners since he is the one who broke the contract with her. But if the slave owners arranges for her to marry his son, he may no longer treat her as a slave but as a daughter. If a man who has married a slave wife takes another wife for himself, he must not neglect the rights of the first wife to food, clothing, and sexual intimacy. If he fails in any of these three obligations, she may leave as a free woman without making any payment. And listen, for added effect, guys, and to finish these thoughts that are happening on concerning slavery and slaves, let's read a few more. I'm just going to hit verses 20 and 21, 26 and 27, and verse 32. I'm going to read it all together because it's all about it. If a man beats his male or female slave with a club and the slave dies as a result, the owner must be punished. But if the slave recovers within a day or two, then the owner shall not be punished since his slave is his property. If a man hits his male or female slave in the eye and the eye is blinded, he must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. And if a man knocks out the tooth of his male or female slave, he must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. If the ox gores a slave... Either male or female, the, animal, the animal's owner must pay the slave's owner 30 silvers of coins, and the ox must be stoned. That's pretty much that whole chapter talking just about slavery. Let's pray real quick because we're going to need it and talk about this subject. Father, uh, help us navigate this, God. Help us, uh, Lord, to, to walk through this in a way that's going to bring clarity to our mind for what you are speaking to the children of Israel in this moment, Lord, but also... Lord, help us to contrast with the slavery we've come to know uh, from our own history, God, in our own history books, Father. And, and Lord, let us see your redemptive plan in all of this so that when we walk away, we, we know why, God, this isn't around anymore. We know why that you are not for it, God. Uh, and Father, show us Jesus in all of this, in Jesus' name. And everybody says amen. Amen. So let's deal with the obvious. All right, slavery. There isn't any place in the Bible that condemns slavery. Welcome to the obvious. There is no place in the Bible that condemns slavery. Not one place. As a matter of fact, there are multiple places, like here in Exodus 21, where the concept of human beings are being trafficked as property. Tons of it, right? According to Leviticus 25, foreigners didn't get to experience the seventh year jubilee of being set free. That only applied to Hebrew or Jewish slaves. Okay, you'll find that in Genesis 16, 30 and 35, some of you will know these stories, right? That many times slaves were used to produce kids, offspring for their barren or infertile owners, right? Hello, Abraham. Remember when we want more kids, we'll just use slaves to have more kids. Now they're part ours, right? Even according to the very scripture we just read, we can see that you can practically do about anything but kill a slave without having to face any really harsh repercussions so here in the scriptures we do see god working within the frame of man's current system all right it's not god's system this is man's system but he's working within the frame of it and it absolutely contains inequality and even some oppression absolutely king solomon coins the phrase in his book ecclesiastes there's nothing new under the sun 
Amen. He is correct. Slavery's been around long before our generation and even the generation of African-American peoples were brought here into America. Long before all that, long before we understood slavery here in America, the Africans being brought over, there's slavery existing all the way back to ancient times. It's been happening for a while, but it's a lot different slavery than we understood here in America. When we think of slavery, we have this idea, this culture that we've been raised up underneath that tells us this was what slavery is, all slavery, but that's not necessarily the case. Uh, uh, Slavery didn't start with us. But I'll be honest, we didn't improve upon it at all. If anything, we might be the Nazis in this whole story when it comes to slavery. Uh, we didn't, uh, we, we probably, if you go look in your history, we we're probably one of the worst people groups to ever own slaves. Definitely very different than the days of Moses and even in the days of Jesus. Uh, uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see slaves. We see them in situations that slaves in America would have never been found in, ever. Right, and it's easy to paint the contrast to see the differences. So, so like I, I think it's important to do so. I think that's where we're going to start this morning, uh, uh, and, and the, one of the reasons why, because I want you to see like a lot of this begins in the heart of men, right? It's not what comes from the outside that defiles man, but what comes from the inside, which is the heart, right? Uh, and so I think if we show the contrast from what we understood as slavery, what the Bible was calling slavery, what slavery was in ancient times, uh, uh, and paint those contrasts, we can see how God was working within a man's uh, frame, you know, and, and begin to see this passage or this pathway to reconciliation and redemption. Uh, so we're going to talk about some of those differences. I've, I've, got, I've got a handful of them, and I'm sure you can find more. Uh, and let me just state up front and be honest about this. This is not because I'm so wicked smart that I, I just figured all this out. And nope, I'm going to tell you right now, I just did a ton of research. I had two weeks. That's one of the greatest reasons I had Michael preaching right there, man. I had two weeks to spend studying, reading uh, what other theologians thought, like Piper and Matt Chandler and, and other great Baptist ministers and other ministers' thoughts on this. Uh, I read some of the old debates that when, ab- when the abolition of slavery happened in America, what were some of the debates? Why were preachers you know, preaching for slavery? Why were preachers preaching against slavery and trying to hear the arguments? I was looking up the, the history of slavery and how it all came to be. So listen, this is not because I'm smart. All I'm doing is I'm sharing a wealth of information that I've uh, taken in and consumed, and I've kind of consolidated it in a way that I can speak and make it easier for me and hopefully make it easy. Hopefully I'm just adding salt on it, right? And, and just so you understand, it's not because I'm a smart at, at all, okay? Just spent some time studying uh, and so I've got a handful of things. I want to show you the contrast between slavery, ancient times slavery as we understand it today. Uh, uh, first one's really easy. A slave generally could not be identified by clothing or color or economic background. Right? Whereas in America, the slaves were Africans. Pretty simple. They were black. If you were black in the days of slavery, you were a slave. Real simple. But in ancient times, that's not the case. Didn't matter what color you were, you could be a slave anyway. Didn't matter how you dressed, you could still be a slave, right? You could have nice stuff and still be a slave, right? The, 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 the America's form of slavery, just going after a certain race, is new to slavery. And it, and it kind of reveals that despite all of our kind of technological advancements that we had today compared to ancient times, um, we were some of the first people groups to make slaves from a specific other people's group. 
Like that didn't exist before us. Oh, nobody wants to be the first now, do they? You know, this is the ugly part of our history, right? But in contrast, anyone in the biblical days could have been a slave. Matter of fact, there were many people groups that were. Tons of them. Look at Persia. Full of them. All different kinds of people groups that were slaves, right? So, there, so that's, a, that's an immediate, easy contrast to see. Not everybody, you know, if you were into slavery, as we understand it, 1817, right in there, you're black. That's it. Pretty simple. If you're black, you're a slave. On the contrast, slave in ancient days, biblical days, Old Testament, New Testament, you can be any color, any race, right? Any ethnicity, any economic background, didn't matter, right? And you could still be a slave. You could still be a slave. One of the other things, the cultural and religious traditions of slaves were usually that of their owners. Usually that of their owners. They usually followed the way of the house, so to speak. So the Africans, until the gospel really began to uh, uh, grow and, 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 and move through uh, their culture, had a com- they had completely different religions and, and different cultural structures, structures than, their, than, than white people did. They weren't like them in the same at all. Whites didn't want them that way. They didn't teach them anything on that end, right? They had a complete, African Americans had a completely different way of living. They had a different way of eating. They had a different uh, 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 way of of interacting with God. They were just completely different. And this is uh, unusual because in the ancient world, you can easily see that slaves had religious freedoms. (laughs) Look in Persia. They worshiped whatever they wanted to worship. Look at, uh, I mean, a real good example. Look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah worshiped God. You think the king of Persia did? Look at Daniel. Daniel was worshiping God while Nebuchadnezzar was worshiping whatever he wanted to worship. And it was not after until Daniel's influence that he started worshiping God. But in Persia, you could worship whatever God you want. Nobody cared if a slave worshiped a different God. You could, you could do whatever you wanted to do on that end, right? Another one, in, in biblical times, education of slaves was seen as just smart business practice. All right? And so uh, 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 slaves were educated by their masters, most times to the point where they were smarter and even more productive (laughs) and more educated than their owners. Think about the biblical stories you already know. I mean, let's just quote in the Bible here. Think about Joseph. Joseph was smart, right? He's educated. He's brought up right in through, uh, obviously, smart being just in, in uh, Israel's house there, uh, Jacob's house. But then he, they find that he's smart. I mean, this kid's smart. Let's go ahead and put him into use, right? What does Potiphar do? He takes his slave. He says, listen, here's the checkbook. Here's the bank account. Here's the keys to all the vehicles. Here's the keys to my entire house. Run it. Be my number, be my right hand man, run that thing. And what did it say? Potiphar's house was blessed, right? That everything he did was just popping, right? And everything was good. So that when time that, I- that Egypt needed help, what happened? Hey, man, we've been watching Potiphar's house. This slave over here has got this thing running like a champ. We need to call up this slave. And guess what? A slave all of a sudden can be the prince of Egypt. The thing about it is, he's a slave running the country. You, that's pretty crazy, guys. All right, what about Daniel? He was a slave that ends up being second in command to Nebuchadnezzar. He's a slave. Think about what we're saying here. Do you think he, they just dressed him all poor? No, man, that guy's robes are nice. He's got the nice sandals, right? The, the Air Jordan sandals, all that stuff, right? He, I mean, he's second in power to the king of Persia. You're not going to see that in America, right? There is no black man during the days 
of slavery in America who's going to be educated higher than that of a white man. There's an oppressive thing that's happening there compared to the slavery we see uh, in the ancient times, right? White people in general were so biased against African Americans that they didn't believe that they were even teachable. They were so racist and so oppressive and so biased and bigoted that they couldn't, they believed that, you know, black people could never be great leaders. They'll never be uh, uh, good fighters. They'll never be anything else other than what they are. Arrogance. But in biblical times, a slave could rise to an unbelievable amount of power. A slave could actually, in biblical times, own land for himself. He could have slaves that work for him and own slaves, right? Slaves back in the ancient times had the ability to save their own money. They could purchase themselves out of slavery and then run the business with the slaves they had just purchased. This is all biblical, right? And then they would go on to educate the slaves that are underneath them and create the process again. Now, again, another one in biblical times, because slaves were owned by all different types of people from economic backgrounds, meaning that anyone could own a slave, the rich, the middle, or even the poor. Anyone could be a slave also. It wasn't just a certain class of people that were slaves, and it wasn't uh, just a certain class of people that owned slaves. In contrast to American slavery, it was specifically one single race <laughs> who eventually, uh, uh, the, uh, one race that would own slaves, one race that would be slaves, and the, and, and the one race that would be slaves begin to be aware, right? Like Israel and Egypt. Now, something's wrong. We're getting picked on. There are no Egyptian slaves. There's only Jewish slaves. Right? And then oppression begins to be seen. Right? This is oppression. This is oppression. And it's such a huge difference than biblical times as you could be a millionaire and a slave and have a slave as your neighbor living in a house nicer than yours. Think about this. In biblical times, that's possible. Can you imagine Joseph's house when all his brothers show up? You think they thought he was a slave? He comes out there, and he's got the guards listening to him, and he's got that. Mind you, he's still a slave. Egypt owns him. But, I mean, think about this, what we're talking about here. Like, they, they own him, and yet they're having to listen to him. He's running the country. He has guards and all that stuff. When you hear the story about when they bring Benjamin in, they're doing pretty much whatever he tells them to do. He's living in a house as nice, almost as nice as Pharaoh, bet. And this guy's a slave. You could be living next. The, the highest guy, Potiphar, probably didn't have a house as nice as Joseph did. Why? Because Joseph's number two to the Pharaoh now. He's not working for Potiphar. Potiphar's a little guy now. His employer now is the whole kingdom of Egypt. And now he's like, he's like the vice president. The slave is. I mean, that's, where, what story in American history do you hear about the lowest slave being risen to the highest office? I mean, it, just, it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen, Right? Um, so you see these giant differences between slavery in, in our uh, uh, country versus and, and slavery as we're taught through history, through, we're taught in our schools as compared to slavery in ancient times as well. It, a slave could dress super nice. A slave could have a nice house. A slave could buy his own freedom back. A slave had a lot of abilities and a lot of freedoms that slaves that we, that we had as Americans did not have. Last one is in biblical times, it wasn't uncommon for people to sell themselves into slavery. You heard that right. They sold themselves into slavery to pay a debt and, and often to avoid poverty. Right? And nobody wants to be poor. Right? So if you look at the, the, the economy of that time or, or, or you look at how that whole thing plays out, the slave really wasn't the bottom level. 
No, it was the guy who just looking for a, a you know a day job. He was. So the guy who's as you know he's looking up for the day job. He's a free man, right? But he's got to get up every morning and he's got to go. Like, what am I going to eat today? <laughs> How am I going to feed my family? I got to get a job. I got to find something steady to do, right, so that I can feed my family. That guy's at the bottom. But the slave could be the prince of Persia. Somebody's taking care of that guy, put him in a position where he's taking care of other people. A slave is taken care of. They, work, they live and work for someone else. A slave could be sitting on the throne next to Nebuchadnezzar. Hello, Daniel. A slave might be working at the left hand of Caesar himself. Whereas the day laborer, he's forced every day to try to find something to do to feed his family. So that bottom rung, right, that, that lower group would sometimes offer themselves up to slavery in hopes that they might be educated, right, trained for whatever they need to do, and then hopefully released on the year of Jubilee. Think about that. It's almost like going to the military, right? Hey, man, it's only six years. You just got to do six years on the seventh year's Jubilee year. You're a Hebrew. If you sell yourself into slavery, you owe a bunch of debt. You've worked. It didn't work out for you. You had some bad business deals. You could sell yourself into slavery six years. You just got to do six years of whatever. Hope you sell yourself into the right person, right? That treats you okay. That doesn't obviously want to beat you up on the edge of your life so he doesn't have to pay any consequences, right? But wants to treat you and train you and educate you, all right? It's not that the oppressive level is not there. I'm sure it is, okay? What I'm saying and what I'm trying to reveal is just different. You can't compare slavery as we understand it here in America the same as biblical slavery. This is different. But the interesting thing about, you know, contrasting it with the generation of believers and people in America that decided uh, around slavery and that were fighting this battle whether we should have slavery or abolish slavery and it was around like 1863 in America where like emancipation was coming out and war was about to break out and, and that the, the feeling began to be so strongly in the churches because it is also the, the same churches, it's, it, the irony, it is not only the church that was preaching for this, it was also the church that was preaching against this. Luckily for us, there were enough people preaching against this, right, that eventually found their way. Uh, uh, to the forefront, right? 1863 in America, that's when emancipation comes out, right? Uh, and some of the darkest days in America, civil war breaks out all over racism. And, and to me, you know, slavery was a horrible black eye in American history. And the way we did slavery was, it, it's not better. It doesn't make us better than Hitler at all. So if we think that that's not in us, we're crazy to believe that. We should always reflect back. Just like uh, I was listening this morning to a lady uh, who's still alive, who was a child at, that uh, uh grew up during World War II, and uh, the, she was uh, on, her, on the podcast. It, it was, she was there to talk about her book. She's you know, a lot older now, but uh, she's like one of the last survivors of Auschwitz. And man, as soon as you say that name, you already like know what that is, right? I mean, that's the thing about Auschwitz. Auschwitz is like, that might as well have been hell itself. I mean, it's the most evil, it's the most vile thing where they just massacred Jews. As soon as many of them were brought in, they'd send them straight to the gas chamber, men, women, and children, and kill them all. They killed 1.1 million Jews at Auschwitz. 1.1 million Jews were killed at Auschwitz for the sake of genocide, just straight up killing them. That's evil and vile. Let me tell you something. That existed in America in the days of slavery. 
We, are the, we, did, we did the African uh, 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 people that brought over, we treated them horrible, horrible. It's a black eye. It, it reminds me of a lot of like, uh, you know, I'm reminded uh, of World War II. I heard a guy say one time, we were talking about, you know, the, the stuff that happened in that generation. And he was like, man, it was so bad. But then when it's the golden generation, they rose up to fight tyranny and oppression. And they rose up to fight these bad, evil things, right? But yeah, but from that same generation came vile and evil things, you know? I think we forget about that. I'm glad that a good chunk of that generation rose up to fight against it. I just hate that there was a section of that generation that was that. And so the same kind of applies towards America in that moment. There's this generation there that's horribly wicked and evil and vile and sin full so much man and they're oppressing people and they're bringing them over and they're treating them like animals and they're treating them poorly and stuff and yet there's also this group of people that's written that's just saturated in biblical knowledge and the love of christ and they're going this is wrong this is wrong and they kept raising their voice and fighting this until one day it would change until one day it would change it's interesting to me to see that part. I think the saddest part of that whole generation is the fact that people actually use the Bible to make an argument for slavery. And, and why? Because the Bible didn't come right out and outlaw it. So they used it to condone it and to continue the oppression of a people. Right? They argued that since the Bible has rules for slavery, then it must be pro-slavery. Come on now. They argue that neither Jesus or Paul came right out and downright said it was bad. That's true. We're going to get into some of this, but that's true. However, those who felt differently, they looked to the words of Christ and some of the things that are happening in the New Testament to really preach and make a strong case against it. And I'm going to share with that some of you. So like if you ever are asked on this, this is good stuff. Okay. The first thing they did, the first thing they argued was this. They found slavery was a clear violation of Matthew 19, 19. If you don't know what that is real simple, you, you really do know it. You just don't realize it. You shall love your neighbor as what? As yourself. As yourself. This was easy to understand that it's impossible for you to love your neighbor and at the same time use your strength to, to withhold their personal freedom. How can you love someone and oppress them at the same time? And so this became a valid argument for them. How can you say you're of Christ when these people are called to be your, your neighbor? These are your fellow brother. You're called to love them, but yet you treat them like you treat them. You can't be of Christ if you dishonor this. You can't be. That was their very first argument. Another one was that many preachers felt that the slavery found in the Old Testament can't even be in, explained in the context of their history. Like, for instance, when, when uh, they fought um, the very first people that they met when they came into uh, uh, the Holy Land or the Promised Land, right? Joshua came in and he says, listen, kill, kill them, right? And, he, and they kill some of them. They take some for slaves and all this. And he goes on to tell them, this isn't, this isn't, God goes, I'm exacting my own judgment against them. I'm using, I'm, I'm, I'm using my theocracy, basically, where I'm exacting judgment against these people group, and I'm using you to do it. That doesn't make you more righteous. 
God is just saying, I am going after these people because their sins are before me. So I'm now going to use you, another people group, to exact my uh, uh, judgment against them. It has nothing to do with you. God did this all the time in the Bible. Remember in Habakkuk, he says, God, I'm, I'm praying that I will, I will see something like the days of Moses. It's, a, it's an awesome prayer. He's like, I just want to see what I read, right? Which is a great thing to pray, right? God says, oh, man, you're going to see something even greater. And we usually quote that line. If you go on to read it, it tells what it is. He's talking about the Persians coming in. <laughs> and then after a while, Habakkuk's like, I don't want to see that, right? I don't, that's, yeah, well, that's the answer coming because it's going to take the Persians coming in, exacting judgment, things like that to get it back to where it needs to be. You don't like the answer sometimes. You probably shouldn't ask That sing, those, those events when that God uses his own uh, uh, sovereignty to exercise whatever he wants to do has nothing to do. It doesn't condone anything. Another good point was this. Um, we talked about it already in the scriptures when he says that if he wants to take a slave also for a wife too, right? Well, so that'll give him two wives. Well, wait a minute. God's going to work with people who have multiple wives? I mean, like he, he did work with Jacob, right? He, he, he did work with Abraham, who he was also sleeping with slaves. Um, David had many wives. Solomon had many wives, and God moved through them. But wait a minute, isn't God against polygamy? Pretty sure Jesus said that, you know, man should have just had one woman as, the, you know, he created Adam and he created Eve, right? But God worked within the confines of that system, didn't he? He worked with them even though it was not right. They did it anyway, didn't they? Slavery is sinful behavior being regulated, not endorsed. God didn't approve of polygamy, but he worked within the systems that men were living in. By the way, that's where you start to see this trail begin. You should already have been seeing it because that's the grace of God working. That's the redemptive plan of God working within men. Men are lost. They can't see that they're lost. They can't see that it's bad for you to have multiple wives. Guys that have one wife already know it's bad for you to have multiple wives. All right? Uh, <clears throat> it's amazing that they were so hard-headed back then and thought, or maybe they were just so arrogant and thought, man, I can handle more than one wife. Brother, all power to you, man. Like, ain't no way. But here, here it is. God's working within this. God's, <clears throat> I don't understand it. It's my thing, right? I don't get that. I don't know how you think that was going to work out good for you. It never works out good for you. Like, Ever. Right? I mean, even after, like, I mean, just if we're on the subject, you know, like if you look at Jacob and he marries Leah first, right? You should have just stopped. I mean, I hate to say that, right? He ends up with Rachel too. And he's like, well, that's not the one I wanted, so I'm still going to work a little bit more for Rachel and get the one I wanted. How do you think that's going to work out between two sisters? Oh, it's horrible. Because if you know the rest of the story, you already know. One teases the other about how infertile she is, right? So what does she do? I know it'll make me feel better. You sleep with the slave. Good thinking, Rachel. You're a brainiac there. But without Rachel, you don't get uh, Joseph or Benjamin. Benjamin is where the first king comes from. But let's, let's be honest. Where does the line of Judah come from? Leah, the first wife. You know, we forget about her because Jacob loved Rachel so much, but Leah produces a lot of good kids and a very strong tribe. Judah comes from her. You know, people, when we get involved with stuff, we mess it up bad. And the interesting thing is God doesn't go, God, just the fact that God's not going, you're a dummy. 
you're a moron. Like the Bible's not filled with insults from God just a ton. I mean, there are some. He calls us stiff neck. And in the same breath, he calls us my treasured possession. Man, you can tell that's a parent. <laughs> Only a parent calls you names and they can tell you they love you. <clears throat> Truth. Right? But God tolerates. Just because God tolerates it, that's grace. That's the redemptive power of God being seated early on, right? <clears throat> Remember when we talked about even concession for uh, when, when it goes, well, Moses, Moses made concession for divorce. And Jesus is like, I know, but that's not necessarily, that, it's not necessarily God's way. God was allowing it because he could see that you're not going to get this right. But that's the point. Concession shows you that God was already giving grace for those things where we make mistakes. And he was doing it not just in the New Testament. Grace didn't exist there. Grace existed all the way back in the beginning. When God said, you know what? Yeah, you messed up in the garden already. Yes, sin's going to go ahead and pollute the rest of this earth, but I'm not giving up on you. So I'm going to clothe you. You're going to have kids, and we're going to work this thing out. And it's just getting worse. Like that's, It's just getting worse. Like we decide, well, we need more than one woman. Bro, look what one woman got us in. Yeah, I said that. <clears throat> Which makes men even more stupid, by the way. That doesn't make men smarter, okay? More stupid. Uh, and, then, and then even through all the problems, God is like, we're going to figure this thing out, man. You, you're going to take multiple wives. I can't make you stop. All right, here's what we're going to do. And that's grace because it's never right. It's never right. Just because he allowed it doesn't mean it's right. Now that, and it's not his fault. If he wanted to stop it, oh, he can. When he wants to exact judgment, he does. And he uses other people to do it. That doesn't mean they're blessed. You think the Persians were blessed? No, they were tools in the hands of God. Look what happened to them, by the way. Look what happened to the Egyptians. They took in Egypt. They thought they were going to oppress them. It all went south for them. Look what happened to the Persians. Where are they today? Where's the big, huge kingdom that was full of gold today? It's desert today. It's a vast wasteland. Oh, it's got some oil, but they're killing each other, and they're never going to understand the resources that they have. They're full of Ishmael. Full it. God, the redemptive power is working there, right? <clears throat> God doesn't condone the things that were happening in the Old Testament, but he works in it and into the confines in the hopes of building a He's building reconciliation up over the years so you can see the process, right? One of the last things the preachers were talking about when they, abolition of slavery, that the New Testament never tolerates slavery. And actually, there were things where it starts to reveal the de kind of demanding its demise. But it does so not by tearing down the governmental system. You remember when Jesus, remember when he, that the big assumption that Jesus was going to tear down the Roman government, right? Oh, he's going to come. The king is coming. When he comes, when the Messiah comes, this oppressive regime that's holding us all back, this oppressive regime that's keeping us down, he's going to tear it all down. And Jesus was quick and, and was pretty adamant about, that's not why I'm here. I'm not to come to destroy Rome. I've come to destroy one thing, and it ain't Rome. It's sin. If I can destroy sin, the rest will take care of itself. Right? That's what he came to build, this this thing that's built on grace, this thing that's built on the destruction of sin and the freeing bondage from sin. Not a governmental system, right? So there's not going to be any talk about uh, the abolition of slavery in the New Testament because God doesn't see that slavery as the problem. He sees sin as the problem. And if he can destroy the sin so that you understand the oppression that you're under in sin and you understand what it is to be free, 
then it will just naturally take its course. The, the evolving of the brain in that mind, in that mindset, in that ideology is going to take its course, right? And where did that begin? Where did these guys go to? What was the scriptures that they went to? They went to Philemon. Philemon chapter 1, right off the bat. The Apostle Paul. This is like the big one. This is like the one that really tears it all down. And this is the one that, that, that basically uh, brings in the conversation of what is happening here, how it's in the heart. That's the whole issue there. And, and it's this, this talk between Paul and Philemon about another man named Onesimus. And this is Philemon chapter 1, 8 through 19. It reads this. That is why I'm boldly asking a favor of you. This is Paul talking to Philemon. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is a right thing for you to do. You hear that? That kind of talk. But because of our love, I prefer to simply ask you, consider this a request for me. Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you to show kindness to my child, Onesimus. I became his father in the faith and while here in prison. Onesimus has been much of use to you in the past. But now he is very useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you. And with him comes my own heart. I wanted to keep him here with me while I'm in these chains for the preaching of the good news. And he would have helped me on your behalf. But I, I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing. Not because you were forced. It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome in as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. And I love Paul, like almost like in all caps, is like, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Most theologians believe that Onesimus is the runaway slave here that belongs to Philemon. And Paul is addressing him as a believer now. Right? So during Paul's stay there in prison, he's able to convert him. And he brings him into the faith. Onesimus here is beginning to help Paul. He's a helpmate in him on, on helping others and teaching and, and, and learning about Christ, right? And here is where we begin to see the roots of slavery being abolished as Paul admonishes Philemon to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. Why? Remember what we were saying? Because how do you treat a brother? You love him as you love yourself, right? I love Matt Chandler. He had this to say on the deal, and I think he does a better job than I do of saying it. He says this, That relationship between the two has been forever changed because the slave had accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So now they don't have a slave-master relationship. They have a brotherly relationship. And how is a brother commanded in the Scriptures to walk with another brother? He is to outdo that brother in honor. He is to consider that brother better than himself. He is to serve. He is to love. He is to help. And he is to protect. All of the slave-master relationship, both in the old, on, 
on through modern nations of slavery are destroyed in the gospel of Jesus. When Paul says this, I send him back to you, not as a slave, but as a brother, and I am sending him back to you forever. Which means, and this is his added in, right? Which means you're both going to die, and you're both going to stand before God. And you're both going to worship God forever. That is the redemptive flow that we see happening in the scriptures when it comes to slavery. God is not going to outright say, it's done with it. God is saying this, slavery is not the problem. Your heart is the issue. Your heart's the issue. You still see him as property. He's not property. He's your brother. He's your sister. Isn't it interesting that God builds a church and, he's, and he wants to build it off family? Where in the kingdom of God, we're all brothers and sisters. In the kingdom of God, we're all family. We're not a bunch of families. That's one of the reasons we say here, we're one family here, not a bunch of different families. When one of us hurt, we all hurt. Period. Just like, you know, just like your families too. When you see somebody you had not seen in a while, are you any indifferent towards them for your family? No, man. I saw them, I, when every time I see my brother, it's like we're 15 again. It's like we never grow up. Like it doesn't matter that I, don't, I might not see him all year. It doesn't stop being my brother. Listen, man, you got to do what you got to do. You got to live your life. God's given you a wife and kids. You got to do right by them. And at the end of the day, my hope is in, in prayer during all that time is that you make it to heaven. I don't have time to judge you. I'm too busy trying to take care of my own life. I don't got time to see if you're going to church all day. I don't have time to see if those things. Why? Because I'm trying to make sure my kids are in church. I'm trying to make sure that the people that are immediately around me are there. That's where I got time. And I'm praying for you that are far away. This is where I love Paul's ideology. Paul's praying all the time. That's what all these letters are. Praying for you, praying for you, praying for you. I mean, all the letters are to the churches he's praying for. While I'm here, I am witnessing and ministering to those who are in my immediate connection. And for all those that I can't be with, know that my heart is with you, that I pray for you all the time. I hope you make it. I hope to see the end. I hope you see the end. Let me close with this. It's always been easy for me to believe the Bible. And here's why. Because it's blunt honest. Come on. It's ugly. It's messy. It's not a fairy tale. I mean, I always love, you know, we believe that Mark's gospel is, was written by John Mark as dictated by Peter. Isn't it interesting that in Mark's gospel, Peter doesn't cut off the ear? <laughs> but in all the other guys, they got that one right. <laughs> that's just biblical truth come on man <laughs> i mean if you were writing your own book i mean if you were moses and we believe moses wrote the, wrote the five first books would you include all the times you stuttered would you include all your deficiencies would you include i mean if you're david in the book of samuel i mean would you want everybody to know you cheated on your wife and tried to kill him or you killed the man to get it done no that's not how kings want to be remembered that's not what they do. They try to build statues for themselves. They try to do all sorts of things, right? But they don't tell everybody about their adulterous affairs. But in the Bible, it shares all those things. Bible, Joy, was, we were talking about this. I was getting ready for this. She was like, she goes, I pretty much hate half the Bible because it's always like some horrible story. She goes like, man, most of the Bibles in the very beginning are all like that. She goes, I can't stand Ezra. Ezra ends with everybody's orphan and all the widows out there on the outsides of towns because the Jews have married everybody they're not supposed to, and they're now having to go get right back with the law again, and they're having to see the consequences of their sins sitting right outside their gates. And, I, and, and I'm like, 
I don't have an answer for that. Like, yeah, it's ugly. But God also commands them to take care of the widows and the orphans, that that's real ministry. Like, so somehow they're supposed to, in their repent, walk in a way that's right, and yet find a way to care about these people outside their gates. And somehow, and somehow play that line. But it's not God's fault that they got there. They decided to quit following him. And in quit following him, the repercussions of those things landed upon them. Slavery isn't God's invention. That's man's invention. God, had to, God gave them regulations to control themselves. You know what happens when he doesn't? Welcome to America. It gets worse. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Eventually, evil gets worse. You think evil can be bad, man. Come on. I start to look back at just in our last hundred years here, and I, I'm, I'm starting to wonder if, like, are we really the worst? I mean, like, like our, and then you start to look back at our culture and the things we've done since World War One and Two. We created the atom bomb, man. You know, I, 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 I've, I've done some studying over the atom bomb, and you know, when it hit, when it hit uh, Nagasaki, do you realize in less than I want to say a sixth of a second, 130,000 people died. Did you hear what I said? In, a, in less than a second, when that thing went off, 130,000 people were dead. I mean, ashes. Ashes. I think we've, we've, got, we've done our fair share of atrocities. We look at the Bible like we're so far advanced from it, I'm not so sure. We can be just as oppressive, if not more. We can, we can be the worst of the worst. That's the, one of the reasons I like the Bible, because at least it's honest. It tells the truth, right? The people that the Bible uses are often arrogant. They're, they're lustful, prideful, vain. Uh, it's filled with the ugliest parts of humanity. But the, the cool thing, I think, now, the, especially the more I see those things, the more I see God's grace and everything, like God's just, just dealing with a people group that is so you know, just wanting to do their thing. You remember by the time they get to Samuel, they say, man, give us a king. We're tired of the church. The God's people haven't been leading us nowhere but in trouble. Give us a king, somebody we can actually see and follow. You don't think that hurts God's feelings? God has feelings, by the way. He gets angry. That's a feeling. Um, but you see the grace of God throughout the entire Old Testament and New Testament. In the study of slavery, it's easy to see its wrongness. It's easy to see the horrible and terrible atrocities that humans can do to each other. But we can also see the grace of God making a way that there were people praying back in those days for it to end. Right? Not just the blacks, too. Although I'm guaranteed it was a lot of them. But I mean, there was even people working on their behalf to make it right. Jesus said the things that defile a man come from within. Our problem is always here. Slavery starts here. Adultery starts here. All sin starts within a man. One thing's for sure, our heart is in the need of Christ. The kingdom of Jesus came to build will be built off brotherly and sisterly love. Not oppression, not racism, not hatred, uh, or anything else. There's no way you walk away from any of this thinking that <coughs> anything else other than this one thing. We are to love one another. We are to love one another as we love ourselves. That's like the walk. That's the only like takeaway I could take away from this whole thing. Like that's that thing supersedes that commandment right there. Overrides all of slavery. 
all of, if we love someone else like we love ourselves, we would never use our strength to oppress them or to keep them down or to treat them not right because we would never want that for ourselves, right? So that's my hope. Like our walk away, our takeaway from this, you can grab joy too while you're there, Michael. Our takeaway from this today is this, to make that our daily practice, to get up in the morning and to have that thought in our brain that we are going to love others as we would want to be loved. Right, and we want to be a church that's known for that. Jesus is pretty, excuse me, is pretty clear that that uh, his church will be known for how they love one another. And so I think we kind of uh, uh, have to be obedient to that. And I'm going to get ready for worship. Hopefully, my wife is going to come. <coughs> Somebody else is not happy with daylight savings. I like long days. We shall see. I say my wife is going to come.